Hello, it's good to have you. I'm Dylan Haskins. And I'm Lisa Hannigan. Thanks for downloading the podcast. As usual, we've picked out some recent cultural sounds and happenings to chat about. On the weekend of the worst storm the UK had seen in 50 years, or maybe it was five years, I can never remember which is real life and which is point break anymore. <laughs> um, but anyway, that weekend, we went to see Punch Drunk's off-site performance of The Drowned Man in the fictitious Temple's studios. And that got us thinking about immersive art, art where you're expected to do more than just sit and watch. We also used the rainy days to go for a wander at the Pop Art Design Exhibition, which just recently opened at the Barbican. I went to the pictures to see Stephen Freer's new film, Philomena, while Lisa, being the bookish sort, read Martin Sixsmith's book upon which the film is based. And in a trip back to 1984, we cracked open a beer to watch the music documentary to rule them all. This is Spinal Tap. Turn it up to 11. This is Soundings. Tonight we're going to Soundings. Tonight we're going to Soundings. What do you think of that? The best part of that was your face while you did it. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. <laughs> They just get better and better. Actually the opposite. (laughs) Fair enough. You have one job each week. It's to come up with a good jingle. Well, I like it to, you know, to tie it in. I was also thinking of doing... It is thematic. Yeah. And I was... The other option, I was going to test you to see how well you knew your Velvet Underground um, songs because of the pop art thing that we're going to go to And topical, yes. Yes. uh, And I was going to sing... Um, I'll be your soundings and and see whether you knew what song that was but uh, I thought that might be <laughs> a bit tricky Have you ever done any actual jingles? No No Could be a good sideline Although sometimes enough. sometimes in a radio show you go in and, and, and they ask would you just do a quick jingle so I usually just sing it over one of my songs because It's nerve It's good to get your song in a jingle Well it's more nerve wracking to make something up um, on the spot well, evidently, I can see you were, you were shaking in the seat today. <laughs> why? Why did you ask? Is it because my jingles are so amazing? Is that? Is that I, I I was just thinking it would be a good sideline if for someone who has the ability to sing. I couldn't even <laughs> sing in tune, so I'm I'm making fun of you. I mean, I couldn't. You asked me to do the baseline to that jingle, and I was like, I, I don't think that's going to work. So, um, apparently, one of the earliest documented jingles was uh, first aired on Christmas Eve in 1926 on network radio in America, and it was for um, that serial Wheaties. And it was to get around guidelines that wouldn't let them put advertisements directly on radio. So they mm-hmm. sung it as a thing. Weedies are really good and these things like that. We actually okay. have the jingle. Oh. <laughs> so how do you feel about your jingle I now? Think, I mean, I think that that's probably arguably... Slightly better than my sound singles, <laughs> do you think? I, I I think you could pin that on the fact that you don't have a whole barbershop. If I had a barbershop quartet, my jingles would be would be would be flying. That was incredible though, I must say, if you think of how, how pretty terrible jingles are now. I mean that really they, they've just started well and went whoop. Yeah, they started well and really tapered after yeah. that. Yeah, that's incredible. Well we we had a little gap between this and the last episode, um, was truth be told, I was having too much fun in Iceland at <laughs> Airways Festival, amongst other things. Um, what, what, were you, what have you been getting up to? The most crazy thing that happened to me in the last week was that I was at home in my parents' house in Ireland and I pulled on my boot and there was something in the bottom of my boot and I thought, oh, it's like a little sock. Pulled on my other boot and then thought, actually, that sock's really going to annoy me. Took off my boot, shook it out and out came a dead mouse. Oh! Yes. And then my mother 
in a complete badass fashion, just picked it up and went, oh, that happens all the time. Just picked it up. What? Put it in the <laughs> Your feet must smell really bad if some mouse unknowingly crawled in there and died, <laughs> suffocated. I think the cat was bringing me, it was a, I think it was a welcome home present. Like I think gift like, in oh, your stockings kind of thing, except exactly, in your just, boot. Just, I'm so glad you're home, here you go. I think that was what was going on. I like that you were going to leave winch. the boot on at, with the sock in there and it was just, oh no, it's mildly uncomfortable. Yeah, I did. Like, I definitely thought maybe an otter. It'll be fine. Just get the sock. <laughs> I could have had that for the day. Well, um, so I still, I still shudder every time I think about it. It's absolutely That is absolutely hideous. disgusting. I challenge anyone at home now to tweet in something more hideous than that. It's pretty up there. Actually, I told my friend Lucy about it and uh, she said that once she found um, a mouse that that had been in her kitchen and then sort of disappeared um, for a while, sort of suspended, confit-like, in a bottle of olive oil that she had just drizzled on her salad. Wow. <laughs> That so, she just she had already drizzled on her salad. Yeah, to just suspended in some sort of awful Damien Hirst. Um, yeah, 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 of, yeah. So, so it was, yeah, that's debatably worse. But if anyone has a worse story, please uh, tweet. tweet I me think your one's worse. I make think me the, feel better. Because she wouldn't have had to eat the salad, but the had she eaten it already? My tight covered toes. Yeah, that's it. Touch that. No, mess. sorry, that's done. Did, yeah. That's it. I don't think anyone's going to beat that. <laughs> Um, You're very welcome to try though If you want to tweet us at, at soundingspod Please do Maybe the mouse was alive When you put your foot in there And you just squashed it to death Yeah I don't Imagine being squashed By Lisa Hannigan's toe to death The last thing you saw Was Lisa Hannigan's toe Coming at you <laughs> what? I Dead. think I think um, I think I would have felt A, a telltale wriggle You know a little squirm <laughs> If I, I'm, I'm just going to tell myself That the cat had killed it first Because I couldn't bear it that is death millions, by foot. millions of times worse, yeah. Well, I, um, I, we were talking in one of the earlier episodes, we were talking about uh, sightings of rock stars in banal places um, doing normal things. And I have my own one in Iceland. Mm? The main person who you're going to, to, to spot or you want to spot <laughs> as part, part of any itinerary in, in Iceland is to, to, to spot Bjork. Absolutely. Um, what, what happened? So I was in the art museum and Airwaves has its amazing festival, one of the best festivals I've ever been to and there's gigs on and everywhere around Reykjavik. And in the art museum, I think Mickey Blanco would just finish playing and Gold Panda were about to go on and I was in the cloakroom which was really narrow and there was a big queue for the toilet beside it and I was just hung my coat up and then my friend was leaving on the other side and I just saw his face drop and turn to look slightly right at me but kind of at my shoulder and I did the same then and there was Bjork standing at my shoulder and then we had to shimmy all the way out past the queue so I was just shimmying with Bjork shimmying behind me she just hung her coat up like everybody else on the coat hanger so I was having a bit of a shimmy with Bjork you're doing a very nice impression of your shimmy it's kind of like sideways crab is my shimmy impression um, I, I, I turned and I turned to her and I said uh, I told her that the reason that I went to Iceland was I'd had an encounter with meeting some of um, some of the Icelandic choir girls that were backing her in, in her biophilia kind of show when she played Electric Picnic in, in Ireland during the summer and, <laughs> and, and they'd been great fun I was like I want to go to that place where those people are from Amazing. and she was like yes they're really something else aren't they and, and I was just like oh my god she from from Amsterdam or <laughs> I thought my Icelandic accent was not too bad. I was just putting in an extra S and an extra H sound. Excuse no. me, are you are you rich man from Frisland? <laughs> right, no, fine. No, Bjork is smart fine. like this. Fine, I won't even try. I'll just, I just, I could have just said, "Oh yes, they're really something else, aren't they?" You know. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate oh yes, it. they're really something else, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine, fine. 
anyway. you know, Dutch Bjork. <sighs> but that was my that was my icing story. I I'd, I'd, I'd be so happy when that happened. I said, "There's something there for standings. It relates to the to that whole thing we'd be talking about." I like, come down here, and, and all I get is abuse. Just abuse. So. Are you sure you were in Iceland? <laughs> anyway, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> From Icelandic stories uh, to immersive theatre. Over the past few years, there's been a big rise in the popularity of immersive theatre where you're expected to do more than just sit back and watch some actors do their thing. The idea is kind of that you become fully immersed in the experience of the piece through your own involvement. And it's not everyone's cup of tea. But if you want to give it a go, there's no better place to start than with Punch Drunk, the British company who've pioneered the form since 2000. During the summer, they opened a new production, The Drowned Man, a Hollywood fable, which has brought huge audiences through the doors of the fictitious Temple Studios in London. We went along there on different days, so we had different experiences of, of what it is. But to just to set the context, it's kind of set across two worlds there's two worlds happening at the same time the world of the Hollywood studios and the world outside the studio gates which is this kind of rundown western themed town the story is told in parallels and it's all based on George Buchner's Wojciech I mean he died having half written it so it was only a fragment of a play that subsequently people have been inspired by and, and finished it in various different and ways and performed a lot there was another production of it this summer in, in at least one other production in London this summer as well actually yeah, it's kind of mad. I'd say that's a writer's absolute worst nightmare. It's like somebody finding your your scribblings and going, ooh, I'll, put, I, that, I'll, I'll have a go at that. What was your experience when you first went along? Cause we went, yeah. Well, I, as you say, it's not everyone's cup of tea. And I really thought it was not going to be my cup of tea uh, because I thought there was going to be the dreaded audience participation and things like that. And I was pretty sceptical. You go in and you... And you put a mask on so that so that you can sort of melt away really and um and then you're just in this world and actually it just swept me away in that the set is the most incredible thing I've ever seen it's set over four floors of this I think it's an old sorting office near Paddington and uh is it I was wondering what it what the building was is because it's complete mystery and they've decorated it so well it's amazing I mean you just go in you get into a lift and then the lift door opens and you are in a different world. And it's, I mean, incredible. Every, it's so, um, you know, in every sense, it's its different. The, the It smells different. There's a soundtrack that goes throughout the whole, the whole building, which obviously sort of tells the actors whereabouts they are in the story. Um, you walk into rooms and there's like, uh, it smells of, dead flowers and it's just amazing in every way but I had I had no idea what was going on for most of the time to be <laughs> honest and then I thought that that was really going to affect my enjoyment of it because I, at the beginning I was sort of struggling to find the narrative trying to follow the story um, and then you really just have to surrender yourself to it you just have to let go and run around and go and see um, as many different little scenes that are going on um, as possible I think the fear of missing out is sort of a part of it you know that you you really have to let that go you yeah. just have to explore and not worry about all the things you know or else you get so frustrated and confused and stuck you know you really just have to go with it and run around When you go in there's, there's, there's two different stories which are happening there's there's the William and Mary characters um, and, and then there's the Wendy and Marshall one is in the studio and the other is in this Hollywood world um, it's the first thing that I, anyone I think is inclined to do when you go in is there are actors kind of milling around 
playing out the scenes from this um, and the scenes aren't all done in a, in a specific order they're all they're all happening at different times in different parts of the building and some of them happen again um, but the first thing you do is explore the place because the set is so detailed you go into a room and you can root in the drawer and you find a letter and everything is relevant to it and you, you can kind of go wherever you want and look at anything you want um, like there's a whole floor that is a desert that is literally sand and and spooky lighting and uh, and then there's a a woodland scene. I mean, it's just mind blowing how they built this set. It's it's the best thing I've ever seen. Mm. I think one of the most interesting things about it as well is how it makes you feel to be so unmoored. You know, you're so used to just going to see something and receiving the play, <laughs> and. Um, and I think that's what's so great about this is how you feel so kind of um, unhinged when when you're trying to choose your own adventure. And uh, there's a kind of a sense of fear and panic the whole time of of what's going on, what's going on. You just get these little little flashes of scenes here and there. Most of it's done through dance as well. So it's really, it, it was really exciting. I've never seen anything like it. It kind of felt like, what well, reminded me the, the choice that I could make between following the, the story of, of, of the play as it, as it happened and just exploring the set, which you could easily spend the whole several hours doing, mm-hmm. um, reminded me of when I was younger playing role playing games like Metal Gear Solid or Tomb Raider, where you you have the time to just hang around in that world and explore the world before you kind of do the the missions, as it were, nothing. Except this is obviously a limited time, so you're missing out if you're just doing the exploring. There was a weird sense of the video game about it, actually. Yeah. Now that you mention it. Which is, I haven't played video games in ages, but like, I was like, oh yeah, it brought that kind of, like a, um, like you kind of retreat into a totally different world mm-hmm. when you're when you're in there. And the poster itself is like a ink blot and then you see what you're supposed to oh, see. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you see, you see, whatever you see says something. And um, and that's what the poster of this is. And it, I never thought that was an interesting idea because it's all about your own perceptions and your own, how your personality sort of guides you through it. And everyone will have a different experience and a completely mm. um, unique evening and that's what's so brilliant about it and I, I would love to go back and have a completely different evening Occasionally I've seen I saw audience members being pulled into a room with somebody really? on their own where, and it was just a random person who happened to be walking by at that moment they got pulled into the room and the door was locked behind them No um, I really wanted that to happen to me but I, di- I didn't get to any of the rooms in time Do you have any weird No No I I <laughs> But you met one of the actors from it. So you, yeah. did you get the inside track on? Well, yeah. This, so the, it is quite intimate. So what I, I um, a friend of a friend is is in is a member of the cast. He's Matteo Oxley. He plays two characters in it. One is the kind of hotshot studio executive, Ace Stanford, uh, and the other is the slightly sinister toy maker called Mister Tuttle. And he's a, Ace is within the studio world, and Mister Tuttle is in this other kind of western themed world. Um, he said he's seen audience members do some weird things and something sometimes to him but like you said he saw you know in that that desert uh, area he saw a woman rolling around in the sand or a man rubbing against himself against a tree and moaning what yeah in the dark I mean I think with the masks people just will do anything another one who kept writing him notes insisting that he give her a jelly bean or she'd tell everybody what he'd done Um, (laughs) which is kind of getting in in the spirit but um (laughs) 
he hosts this rap party in one of the studios and one incident sticks out in his mind. He said, I was sauntering around the bar recently with a martini in hand and got chatting to a middle-aged Russian woman who had been staring at me all night with a slightly sinister look in her eye. For the remainder of the night, she followed me around and even gave me her number, insisting I call her for free accommodation in St. Petersburg. In fact, she was so enamoured with my character that she refused to leave the building at the end of the show until I slow danced with her. Reluctantly, I agreed, but the rest of the cast thought we knew each other, so didn't come and save me until I was literally trying to unclasp her hand from my butt cheek and make a dash for it. <laughs> wow. I mean, some people wouldn't complain about that, but... I don't know. Uh, but, but if that's part of the job, I said the actors really must have to be prepared for anything to happen. They must be well used to mad things happening, I would say. I mean, they're... They well, he, he's, his other character has a one-on-one with people. So another woman was trying to lick blow it off his finger and kiss him while they're in the shop having this one-on-one thing. Jay, like, who are these people? I know, to? I know. <laughs> it's amazing what people will do with a mask on, isn't it? Yeah. And maybe this, because there's the soundtrack the whole time as well and the dim lighting, mm. it feels kind of sexy as well. It feels like you're inside a film. It really does. And you feel like you've got to play up to the part, I think, as well. You know, you've got to be extra suave or something. Is this the bit where you say that you you are that lady with the, <laughs> with the blood off the finger? I was I was insinuating that it was you. The, <laughs> I, I could see there was a guilt. Oh, there was a look of guilt in your oh, eye. He remembered me <laughs> and my Russian accent. That's the first immersive thing that I've ever been to. I've never, I've never experienced anything like that before. Have you been? You were saying you went to a Laura Marling yeah, show. Yeah, I've been to a few things. I mean, I'd imagine the first immersive things that really happened in art were probably installations. You know, where you walk in and you're mm. kind of within the piece and it's around you. And um, but then some theatre things recently. There was a few things that I was at in the Dublin Theatre Festival by a new production company which were this immersive thing where it was really quite intense as well and that was fantastic too but then the first thing I went to it was a, a music immersive thing um, other than say a festival which is the ultimate music immersive <laughs> experience but it was the secret cinema who do and have been doing immersive cinema for a few years in, in, in London and, and elsewhere around the world as well they did it in Afghanistan too um, How do you mean immersive cinema like you get dressed up and So yeah so they did say Shawshank Redemption and everyone was dressed in scrubs and paraded around a yard or okay. um, they pick really amazing locations and everyone has to, to get into it so the first one they've started a new thing which is secret music and the first person they did it with was Laura Marling and it was for her new album Once I Was an Eagle so the idea was it was this old Victorian building in, in Hackney there was an old school the old Cardinal Pole School there um, and they called it the Grand Eagle Hotel and it was the Grand Eagle Hotel Ball of 1927 everyone had to come in black tie and you were given a list of things that you had to bring you had to uh, you had to bring flowers and stuff you had to learn how to waltz um, <laughs> you come in you leave your phone at the door and again similar to in, in The Drowned Man as well there's actors it's sort of it's sort of a hotel with a seedy undercurrent of activity happening that you, you get glimpses of occasionally um, but you could wander into a room and there was people sitting down and Willie Mason was playing for instance one of the nights was playing guitar to this room of people or Laura Marling played in a chapel or at the end of the night then everyone was brought into the ballroom and we all had a photograph taken while we were all there in, in black tie and then Laura Marling played the ball as it were and she played a full set I saw that photograph it looks like the end of The Shining you know you know, in The Shining where, they, where there's a photograph it's a film of... Lisa of course I haven't seen it <laughs> true true you know films <laughs> no but tell us about that scene 
oh, it's just it's just a photograph, but it's it's okay, of yeah, a ballroom yeah. with yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. in black tie looking slightly creepy. Which I, I remember seeing the photo of 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 the Eagle Hotel that had the same kind of creepy look. Totally. Well, you can go and see more photos of it because they're now doing an exhibition of all of the material from it. So an artist has done some portraits and they've taken loads of photographs. They photograph the audience each night, but there was all sorts of materials. People were writing love letters and bringing photographs of lovers and putting them around the um, the building. And each room was themed around a song from her album. So that's how the connection was as well. Okay. So there was a, it was a fully connected to the theme of her album, which uh, was, was really well done. And something about the idea of secrecy with these things as well that you you can't tell people about it the locations are often secret until the last minute and mm-hmm. um, people tend to not tell you what happens when you go in you know not to give too much spoilers away but they they secret cinema it's communicated now I know we've, maybe we've said too much about Punch Drunk but it's been on for a few months so um, hopefully you've seen it but if not I don't think I don't think we can give anything too much away from it it's it's so overwhelming when you go in there um, I mean you were saying that you wouldn't mind going and seeing it a second time so maybe it's it's there's no harm to have a bit of a, a handle on what to expect before mm-hmm. you before you go in there I definitely would if you are thinking of going to see The Drowned Man I would go and read up as much as you possibly can beforehand so you have a, a tiny tiny head start um, and the, there is still some time left to see The Drowned Man as it's running until the 31st of December. You can get tickets and information for that from nationaltheatre.org.uk and the Secret Cinema Grand Eagle Hotel 1927 exhibition opens from the 19th of November to the 5th of December at the Rifle Maker Gallery on Beak Street in London. Also this week we looked at the same story told through two different mediums, that of Philomena Lee and her son Anthony. Philomena was a teenager in 1952 when she was sent to Ross Abbey in Tipperary, one of the notorious Magdalene laundries, where unmarried mothers were sent to have their babies in secrecy. The young mothers, if their families could not afford the considerable sum of £100, had to work unpaid for three years, seeing their children for only an hour each day. Eventually, Philomena, under considerable duress, signed a document to relinquish her parental rights to Anthony and he was adopted by an American couple in exchange for a donation to the church. They spent the next 50 years searching for each other. Which is commonplace as well. It's not, uh, this isn't, yeah. you know, this isn't a completely unique story. This happened to so many women. Well, that's why, that's why it's so stunning because you know that it is just one of hundreds. Um, well, I read the book The Lost Child of Philomena Lee by journalist Martin Sixsmith and Dylan saw Stephen Freer's film Philomena starring Judy Dench and Steve Coogan. So neither of us has seen what the other has, has experienced from this. So we're going to come at it from yeah. um, like jousting with a blindfold <laughs> or something. <laughs> well, so the book is written by Martin Sixsmith, a journalist, um, and the book mainly focuses on Philomena in the Magdalene Laundry, um, having Anthony, and then it's it's really about Anthony's life in America and and how the adoption affected him, um, and and how he got on um, feeling displaced and feeling unsettled all of his life, and then really the bit about her trying to find him is sort of secondary. There's only sort of one chapter about Martin Sixsmith and how he and how he met Philomena and how really, they right, went searching right. for him. So it's all about um, Anthony's life, really. Which they've changed changed considerably in that, that the whole narrative of this is the journalist, the character in this in the film, Martin Sixsmith, played by uh, by Steve Coogan and, and uh, Philomena played by Judy Dench. And the, the whole story is they're coming together and the journey to go and 
her to try and trace um, his happening. There's a little bit at the start which is about her in the laundries and um, shows shows it um, a little bit, but um, that's that's completely different. I wonder. So Six Smith in the book, he doesn't put himself into it too much, does he? No, no. It's he's really just telling the story. Right. He's, he's not a character in in the book. Um, which is the which is a big difference then in the film because the, the, one of the things that makes the film so enjoyable, aside from it being a, a very tragic story, is uh, the dynamic between Steve Coogan and Judy Dench and the the kind of smart, well heeled um, journalist who has quite high notions about about himself and the completely unassuming emigrant Irish mother who now lives in now lives in London and the 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 exchanges between them are, are what lead lead to a lot of the laughs and there are actually quite a lot of laughs in it here's a clip of some of those exchanges there are avenues we can pursue in America I'm getting the royal treatment Martin I feel like the Pope champagne or bucks first oh no thank you it's free oh I, I see you have to pay for everything on Ryanair why would God bestow upon us a sexual desire that he then wants us to resist? The thing is, I didn't even know I had a clitoris, Martin. Right. You can hear there that the Coogan's role, he's co-written the screenplay and has created this role of this journalist, which uh, is obviously the addition, but it's really what makes, what makes the film... Um, give it that balance of sad and funny as well. Mm. It's not just It's not just about this is really awful stuff that happened. That's there, but... There's the, a relief in it too. The, I mean, the book doesn't really have that relief that much, but it's it's not relentlessly sad as well, you know. But it, it, it I mean, certainly the bits in the laundry are really hard to read. I mean, it's so astounding the inhumanity of the whole thing. Um, but his life is, you know, is is uh, is not altogether unhappy. But it's it's certainly not as um, as easy as I imagine the. As I imagine that the film is. Mm. So how's how's Judy's um, well, Judy, accent? Is she? Are we talking like Kate Blanchett and Veronica Guerin or Julie Roberts Julie and Roberts Michael and Collins? It's <laughs> the classic. I mean, Judy Dench has her mother is her mother's from Dublin, and their parent her parents met while her dad was studying medicine in, in Trinity in Dublin as well. So oh. she has good credentials to 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 play an Irish character as um, well as being Judy Dench. As well as being Judy Dench, her <laughs> accent is really good. It's one of the strongest okay. on screen Irish, especially when you consider how. Dame Judy Dench talks anyway in, in real life as well. It's <laughs> remarkable how she um, she does the accent so well. Well, it's not remarkable. She's Judy Dench. She can do she can do yeah, anything. I'd, um, I'd say she could. Yeah, maybe she was the Russian lady in the Drowned Man. <laughs> uh, I'm sure any actor would let Judy Dench clasp their butt cheek. <laughs> um, she's she's really good, and um, obviously Steve Coogan is is playing an English character, so he doesn't have to do any 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 accents. Um, there's no room to fall down. It is actually a tricky thing in films often when there is someone who's not Irish playing an Irish person because the accent is more often than not horrifically bad. I don't know. I think it's just because we know what it's supposed to sound like. But but, but, but you know, but say, think, you take a film like About Time and um, Donald Gleeson puts on an amazing British accent. He studied Hugh Grant to a T. Yeah, but I think, I don't know whether it's just because we're Irish that we hear the nuances that make something I mean, it's either right or it's incredibly wrong, you know, in an accent. Like I watched Peaky Blinders, which I loved. Um, and I was asking my friend uh, from Birmingham about it. And he was like, oh, can't listen to it. Can't listen to the accents, you know. Really right. And yeah. so I think I think it's a universal thing that just anyone do. It's just that there's something about the Irish accent that just people love doing it at you. 
<laughs> they love it. <laughs> it's one of those shutdown moments, isn't it? <laughs> Within conversations where you just have to say the, no. Just the dark cloud goes across your face. <laughs> <laughs> and people say it so unassuming as well. They think they're just being friendly and doing the, the casual Irish accent. And it just, it's, it's never a thing to do. It's just never a thing to do. No, it's good. Are, are good are hot tips. Unless you're Judy Dench. Unless you're Judy Dench or, or Kate Blanchett as well. So the book isn't funny in any way then, is it? No, it's not funny. Right, so <laughs> I mean, it's not relentlessly grim, but it's it's no, it's not funny. I mean, I've seen the trailer for the film and it looks it looks really good. It looks really light and and sad, um, which is such a hard line to to, to toe. But um, no, the book is just very straightforward, but it's such an interesting story that needs to be told as well. So one of the things that affected me most was that this happened in Ireland. And it's it, it affected me more because it's where you're, where I'm from, and to think that not too long ago, quite recently, that this type of thing could happen, uh, um, and and that some of the people involved, even who some of them were, you know, were perfectly well intentioned, and I think the film does a lot to say that there were there were good people in there in 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 the, in the nuns, in particular the Sisters of Mercy, I think it is. In in this case, there were good people there too. Um, it sort of shows how dangerous it is for. Um, f- for anybody to be in charge in a complete and um, secret way, mm. you know, and, and I think that was that was the perfect storm of these places where um, you have people with all the power and people with no power, and nobody was allowed to talk about it, um, and you know that that's it just shows w- what a dangerous combination those things are. Well, to go back to the to the characters for a minute, in in terms of how the screenplay uh, plays out, um, I think Steve Coogan is is really good in this. I really like Steve Coogan's work. That's not Partridge particularly as well. I mm-hmm. I love him in um, in a Cock and Bull Story, for instance, or or Twenty Four Hour Party People. I think they're and the trip as well. The one with Rob Brydon was amazing. Those things which are offside. What he's what he's most widely known for. He's really good at. He's, he's. I think he's done himself justice in the character that he's created for himself. Although, obviously, being a journalist, it's not too far away from from that other territory of of Partridge in some ways as well. Did he Did he write the script? Did he, he co-wrote the the screenplay? Okay, well, I'm not sure who he co-wrote it with, um, but I'd imagine that he he's very much a man who would write his own characters and these types of things and and does it well too. Um, the film got it got rated. Uh, in an R rating in the US, it's been released here uh, already, and it's showing in some cinemas at the moment still. Um, there was two kind of profanities in it, two swear words or something like that, and because of that, uh, you're only allowed to have one if you want to get uh, the. I think it's the PG thirteen. So why are you allowed one swear word I've, and not? Two? I mean, you think one? Do you think one just sort of flies by and nobody notices? Or? Yeah, I think one one you might be like, did they, did they did swear? They? No, 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 we didn't swear. Whereas if it happened the second time... Just you, so you can like, you can be sure of the pronunciation if you if you have it twice. You definitely don't want to learn the word properly <laughs> off. I don't know, it's bizarre these things, aren't they? Um, anyway, I'm not the I'm not the censor, so I don't know. <laughs> write, write a strongly worded letter. And, a, and apparently this programme is explicit. Soundings is... Uh, Soundings is explicit. So we, an explicit we don't need to say profoundings. We could say fuck if we wanted. <laughs> profoundings. <laughs> <laughs> did I say that? Did I just say profoundings? That's like our religious Did I unknowingly one. make up a pun there? You did. Profoundings. Profoundings. Amazing. 
well, we, we're happy with our, our rating on, on this podcast. <laughs> um, and if you if you want to go see Philomena, which I do really recommend, it's in some cinemas and the book by Martin Sixsmith is published by Macmillan. You need to go see the film as well. I do. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Now, on the last show, we talked about a lecture that Brian Eno gave in New York earlier this year as part of the Red Bull Music Academy. It's online, so you can always look it up and watch it. We want to do something similar on the next show, though. So if you've seen an interesting video or an exhibition or read something, anything really, as long as it's online please send us the link and tell us why you found it interesting basically we can't afford researchers um, no, well that's not true well it is true actually but <laughs> you know how it is you see something good and you send it to a few friends so it'd be great if you'd include us with that um, Twitter is the easiest way to get in touch with us at soundingspod or you can also email us if you're the rambling kind and you want to go on a bit more our email is soundingspodcast at outlook.com For this episode, though, we actually physically went to an exhibition at the Barbican about pop art design, which, unlike the title of their last exhibition, The Bride and the Bachelors, which is about Marcel Duchamp's influence on various artists, pop art design is a bit more obvious, simple and to the point as titles go. There's 200 works by over 70 artists and designers, some which will be terribly familiar and others maybe less so. It includes the likes of Peter Blake, Richard Hamilton, Roy Lichtenstein, Andy Warhol, Ettore Sotsas. Did I say that right? Yep. Great. And Charles and Ray Eames. It's a lot to get through, but it's all laid out well, so it's not too overwhelming. Um, The piece that greets you when you go in is the version of Richard Hamilton's 1956 collage, Just What Is It About Today's Homes That Makes Them So Different, So Appealing, which is one of the seminal pop art piece that kind of is said to be the the birth of of pop art in in that piece. And the rest of the exhibition on that floor is, is almost like how it came about, all the... The, the kind of things that are there in, in the foundings of it. Yeah, the kind of the root system of it. Yeah. With the sleek imagery and the collage and the shininess and the branding and stuff like that. Um, I, I've i never really been a big fan of pop art, actually. Never, never really connected to it. But I do love the design from that era. And so that's kind of my favourite bit about the exhibition. There's some really nice stuff from Charles and Ray Eames. There was the Atari Sotsas uh, computer, the early computer, the Alea 9003 or something, which looks like something out of Willy Wonka. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, I have no idea what sort of computing it did, um, but that was really great to see. Just that moment, the post-war energy and excitement and interest in technology and the future. Which had a mystery about it. The technology is all kind of... Um sometimes almost whimsical and there's a lot of stuff about robots in there as well there's a little corner dedicated to that when I said it's not too overwhelming you made a look with your eyes which was to, it to was say so oh <laughs> I did feel a bit overwhelmed um, because I think I got there sort of an hour before closing and, and then I realised it was two floors and I thought oh god it's just massive it it's, took a long time but it's 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 pretty fun you know it's a fun energetic exhibition so you kind of fly around it a bit I went with my housemate and he, he finished doing the rounds before me because I had to I had to look <laughs> at it a bit longer um, and by the time I finished and got to him he'd, he'd chatted up someone and got their number so uh, <laughs> he, he, he got extra out of the exhibition than, than one would normally get Um <laughs> Well, I I mean, as I always say, I would wear comfortable shoes anyway, that would. <laughs> for all of the things in this show, actually. Exactly. Well, for life in general, for God's sake, wear comfortable shoes. With no mice in them. Oh. <laughs> I, I, like you, I don't really have a lot of time for, for, for pop art. You have to you have to acknowledge that it's there and it's played a huge importance and it, it, it's been very influential. But I'm much more excited by, by the all the 
traces of data that kind of led to to some of the pop art thing. It's there in the Richard Hamilton collage and that work, which totally comes out of data and the playfulness and the subversion, um, which which when it was in data was kind of thrilling and exciting and how they were um, making these, you know, these ready-made objects which had absolutely no function. When it comes to pop art, though, the whole thing has become commercialised. It's a complete antithesis to what Dada was really about. And there's this kind of idea that, you know, pop art was, was it being, it's, it's, it's ambiguous to, was it being critical of the consumer society or was it complicit? And I think when you look at how much money all of the artists involved made, you can, it can only have been complicit with it. It was totally consumerist in terms of making these desirable objects. Yeah, I think it was complicit in it. That's what it feels like. It's celebrating it more than denigrating it, for sure. Especially when people like Andy Warhol had a background in in advertising before they came to uh, before they before they came to being artists, and they were totally using the aesthetic and the ideas of advertising, which then in turn got used again by advertising. You could almost do uh, an exhibition just about pop art and advertising and the, the the relationship between that. But then you started seeing that works like from Jasper Johns and from Rauschenberg and from Warhol were displayed in shop windows on Fifth Avenue, and that the idea of the the gallery and the shop window was became blurred. Um, which you can say in some ways is, is is revolutionary, but in, a, in all the wrong ways, as far as as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you could see how they they both fed off each other. That's what that was what the the most interesting thing about the exhibition, seeing how how they both um, were, were were nourished by by each other's aesthetic. But then the art side sort of recovered, you know, and kind of lost that sense of um, mass production about it. I mean, I, I think a lot of the, the critiques that people um, can level at, at contemporary art nowadays and the way it's at, uh, a lot of that can be can be traced back to pop art. You can see the influence of pop art, especially on the, um, the, the YBAs, the Young British Artists and that movement and things that followed in, in that particular vein. Um, it totally has pop art in its DNA and where it came from. And Absolutely. I mean, I think pop art really um, was the birth of that sort of culture of celebrity and sort of television and mass production and consumerism, all all of these things, you know, are echoed so loudly um, today. There's a Richard Hamilton piece from 1972 release, which he made several different versions of this, but it uses the imagery of Mick Jagger after the after his trial when and he's in the he's in the the back of a car and he's being photographed by kind of paparazzi and he's used those images and made some collage out of uh, the, the the newspaper cuttings about the Rolling Stones and how that story was being sensationalized so totally plays in the art and the celebrity thing all all come together in that respect that piece I, I'd actually seen that before it Dublin Contemporary Exhibition in 2011 they'd had um, an exhibition of his stuff in the, in the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin as well uh, so people might be familiar with that, that piece if you're listening in Ireland um, it was a good exhibition though this is the thing it wasn't um, it was I'm, so enjoyable you know I'm happy to have seen these things and to have made these kind of conclusions about pop art that not like because there was a lot of really good things about it and things there was lots of pieces that I actually really liked in it as well My favourite one was um, Klaus Oldenburg's London Knees Did you see that one? It's a sculpture sort of life-sized um, of a pair of ladies' legs between the boot and a skirt bottom was that was how it was described This was going to be monumental in size and was to be placed next to the Thames Um and because to him, the miniskirt sort of completely characterised London 60s, which I'm sure it, it did. Um, and and in terms of scale, he was thinking of the sort of nuclear power stations and things. And he wanted to make these two massive knees 
uh, as a sculpture. I hope, I hope eventually they get made. I mean, he designed it in 64, I think. Um, but yeah, I hope eventually they do get made. Uh, the one that's why did you, What did you like about it? I just love the irreverence of it, of these just two little legs sticking up in the air. Um, they don't look particularly feminine, do they? I don't know. They're sort of slightly knock-kneed. Um, but I thought it must have been quite scandalous at the time, you know. The hemlines rising were such an important part of sort of swinging London. Completely male-dominated the exhibition. There's a few, a few, there was a few female pop artists, but very... The, Jan Hayworth was in there, the lady that sort of co-designed the S- Sgt Pepper cover. With Peter she Blake. Did, yeah, with her then-husband Peter Blake. And uh, she did a lot of soft sculptures. She did that lovely the the donuts, coffee cups, and comics one that was all sort of made out of um, fabric, and then she also did the you know alarming cowboy, which is a life size sort of fabric man leaning creepily against a wall. I, did, I wasn't mad into that. There's also like a, a side room where you go in and they show James Bond introductions and Andy Warhol Silver Clouds, um, a film. Of that, so this lovely room where you just sort of sit down, flop down, and 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 watch these films. And I remember seeing Silver Clouds in. It was a big retrospective of Andy Warhol in Dublin when I was a teenager. And I remember going in and lying on the floor, and these big aluminium pillows, helium-filled pillows, just sort of softly floated around the room, blown by these little fans, and. Um, and then, of course, you could see the reflection of you and the room and everything sort of changing and looming and retreating. And I remember really, really enjoying it, just purely out of the fun of the whole thing um, as a as a teenager. So it was kind of nice to see that again. I heard about that piece through, there was this competition we did when we were in school, which was like design a room and it was an interior design competition. But our art teacher had made us design this room and we went with a pop art theme for it and ours was very much inspired by Warhol so we had the room with there was a camera there but there was one of those little silver balloons and our teacher had told us about that and we said okay we'll put it in but that's obviously where it came from there's a mystery a mystery from probably about eight (laughs) years ago solved there and thanks for that that exhibition pop art design runs until the 9th of February next year so there's plenty of time to go and see it barbican.org.uk for more info and you do have to buy tickets for it and finally though it's time yes this is my favourite segment of all uh, our collective trip to the cinema at the end of memory lane <laughs> your memory uh, lane it's a new it's brand new exactly. it's brand new for me this is... I'm assuming it's it's the people listening at home's memory lane too, okay. to be honest uh, and we're going to try and technical her in the black and white landscape <laughs> of your teenage film missing years I was just I was just out, I was just out in the real world you know <laughs> out on the mean streets in the mean streets of Dublin well while you were on the Mean Streets of Dublin, I was learning all about music uh, <laughs> through the medium of this, this final tap. How, how did you get on? Well, you, you actually do learn a lot about music from this. And even though it is, you know, one of the probably, maybe it's one of the first mockumentaries, is it? I'd imagine so, yeah. You can call it a rockumentary, you can call it a mockumentary. <laughs> In fact, Marty de Berge, uh, the, the, the film character director played by the actual director, Rob Reiner, does talk about this as a, a rockumentary in his <laughs> in his introduction but you do learn a surprising amount about the dynamics of, of being on tour with a big band like that and I'm sure that the type of antics that happen there is not far removed away from many of the big acts that still tour today. Absolutely and when actually reading the, the trivia as you do on it um, it comes up again and again I specifically remember Ozzy Osbourne 
and I think Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith not realising it was yeah. <laughs> a, a mockumentary at all. Just saying, oh, I haven't heard this band, but okay, I accept this. Um, and I think that that probably happens more than than people would like to admit. It's funny, it's one of those films that is is in the kind of collective consciousness of at least of anyone who's into music but probably of, of of anyone really because I, I hadn't seen it but I could quote loads of parts from it and when I saw them there was other things which I saw where I was like oh that's where that's, that's from as well <laughs> it's like me in Greece where, <laughs> but you just say these things and you don't necessarily know where it came from um, yeah. so I, I have been missing out this is one of the first ones where you definitely have increased my awareness that I ought to <laughs> things that I ought to have known where, where they came from Um it's so clever from the get-go. It opens with the director, Marty DeBergie, introducing it, saying, I'm a filmmaker. I make a lot of commercials. Like, in the, in the second two lines, you've got a, you've got a gag straight away, um, which I'm sure many, many filmmakers, independent filmmakers will have, they have that dilemma of they, you know, they are filmmakers, but they end up having to make the crust by doing lots of commercials as well. Um, another bit I loved was where he reads the bad reviews of their album back to them. <laughs> Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit regarding Intravenous de Milo. This tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Well, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? The gospel according to Spinal Tap. This pretentious, ponderous collection of religious rock psalms is enough to prompt the question, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap and couldn't he have rested on that day too? Never heard that one. No, no, that's a good one. That's a good one. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. Um, <laughs> I love this. I love this. Apparently, the, the, the whole sort of smell the glove cover debacle, um, the cover was based on White Snake's Love Hunter, which is sort of a, a Have you lady. not got that on your iPod? Yeah, yeah, I just haven't, haven't listened on the, on the, way. On yeah. the way in. Yeah, <laughs> great, great tunes. Well, uh, it's sort of a, a naked lady um, is sort of straddling a, a white snake um, <laughs> and she's looking both uh, perturbed and possibly happy about it. I'm I mean, not, that is I'm a classic cover though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> so what was your favourite bit? I think my favourite bit is when Nigel Tufnell is playing this really soft piano. And, uh, oh, the, the mock piece. Yeah, here, here's <laughs> here's that clip. It's pretty. Yeah, I like it. Just been fooling about with it for a few months now. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D. Minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a... It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between, though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. All of, all of the gags. <laughs> is, is, is D minor the saddest key? That's what they, yeah, that's, that's science. 
It's a good thing. See, you do learn plenty of things about music from this. <laughs> it's true. If anyone wants to write a song, you know, D minor is the key to do it in. But it's become like, a, it's become a, an adjective. You know, someone does anything in any way divish in a band and it's like, so Spinal Tap, you know. It's, it, yeah. is, it, is a, it is an adjective almost. Well, you know, I, I personally have to have large bread when, I, when I'm on tour. It's a big part of my writer that I, you know, I need my bread and, and the ham and the cheese to be the same, you know, just of, of like proportionate size. I heard um, about the time you didn't get that. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. I'm very sorry to all those people, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was, I'm so hungry. <laughs> so the film is has become, you know, it was kind of this cult film, but it is now it is absolutely a classic. It's not cult in any way. It's it's so well regarded. It's been preserved as like one of the really important American movies in the, in the American <laughs> Library of Congress. Like one of those that they sort of shoot into space and you know some that they dig up in the back garden. <laughs> they put in a time capsule. Do not open until. Uh, Two thousand. I think you know. Every time you watch a music documentary, it does it, it does sort of line up next to Spinal Tap. Like Dig, one of the greatest music documentaries of the last last um, few years. There's so many moments in that where you just think, "Oh yeah, there they go," <laughs> and that's kind of part of the fun of it. I think. Well, for fans of Harry Sherry, you may be interested to know that he's putting on a concert in London on November 30th at the Leicester Square Theatre, where he's going to be joined by the likes of Rob Brydon, Maureen Lipman and Marcus Brigstock, with all the proceeds benefiting the New Orleans Musicians Assistance Foundation. And we're actually hoping to have Harry Shearer on Soundings. So if you do have any questions for him, tweet us and uh, and we can we can throw them at him. Our Twitter again is at soundingspod. What's, what's my thing for next week? So next week... Uh, this is slightly different now this week because I did ask you whether you'd seen this film and you said you thought you did. Yeah. Um, but because you didn't immediately throw 50 quotes at me, I've decided you haven't really seen it. No, it didn't sink. It did def- it's definitely a while. Uh, so this is one of my top five films of, of all time. Uh, the Coen Brothers, The Big Lebowski. I've definitely sat down to watch it, but it's years ago and I definitely didn't appreciate it because no. I don't have the raft of course. Not it, good enough. In Not Reykjavik, there was a Lebowski bar uh, themed entirely about the big Lebowski. And where you could only uh, drink Caucasians, a tasty beverage. You'll, you'll know about it next week. <laughs> now, <laughs> next week next week well uh, thank you for listening I hope you've enjoyed the show if you're enjoying the series please do tell some more people about it and pass on the link the easiest way to get to the pod on iTunes is to go to bit.ly forward slash soundings pod is, is this the end of the show? well I don't I don't really think that the end can be assessed uh, as of itself as being the end because what does the end feel like it's like saying when you try to extrapolate the end of the universe you say the, if the universe is indeed infinite then how what does that mean how far is, is all the way and then if it stops what's stopping it and what's behind what's stopping it so what's the end you know is my mm-hmm. question to you yeah.